Hi there, my name is Dr. Tom Mike. I'm a pediatric hospitalist from Akron Children's Hospital and host of the PHM After Dark podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking to you about the Emo Project. Now, before you go breaking out your good Charlotte and My Chemical Romance merchandise, I should probably mention that in this case, Emo stands for Eliminating Monitor Overuse Trial. It's a large multi-center study organized through the PRIZE network, and it's focusing on the use of continuous pull socks in patients with bronchiolitis. But rather than have me haphazardly explain it all, I think it's better to have the experts and leaders of this project explain things. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Chris and Hallie, who are going to tell us a little bit about themselves, and then we'll get into the rest of the project. Chris? Thanks so much, Tom, and thanks for inviting us to be part of this podcast. It's really fun and exciting that we get to share some um, some of the info about emo with you and and your uh, your audience. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Chris Bonafide. I'm a pediatric hospitalist as well. I work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, I'm also an implementation scientist um, and spend a lot of time uh, mentoring fellows and and doing research on my own. And, and emo is a is a big part of that. Well, thanks for joining us today, Chris. Hallie, what about you? Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Hallie Ruppel. I'm a PhD prepared nurse scientist. I'm on faculty at the School of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania, and I also have an appointment at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, My background is in pediatric critical care nursing and and nursing education, and my current research focuses on sort of the intersection of technology and safety um, and communication. Um, And I'm a co-investigator on the EMO trial with Dr. Bonafide. All right. Well, thank you both. And again, welcome. So I've actually been part of the EMO project for a while, but I definitely don't have nearly as intimate of an understanding of the science at all and really what the project's getting at. So Chris, why don't you give us a second to explain really what eliminating monitor overuse means? Sure. Yeah. So Tom, you know, this all got started quite a few years ago. I I got started as a young uh, researcher, actually really interested in alarm fatigue and monitoring and thinking about ways that we might be able to um, make alarms safer, make monitors safer so that we could really detect kids who, who were truly deteriorating in the hospital. And one of the offshoots of that was figuring out, are there ways that we can monitor fewer kids in the hospital that maybe don't need to be monitored. So I had done some work in, in that direction and then got really interested in thinking about, well, is there a population of kids in which uh, we could safely reduce monitoring? And the one that I kept coming back to was bronchiolitis and kids with bronchiolitis who are not requiring supplemental oxygen. So back in um, 2018, we had the opportunity to submit a grant to really start to understand how much overuse of pulse oximetry monitoring was happening relative to the national guidelines that exist. And so we did that. So we were able to secure a nice uh, grant from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute to first start to understand the degree of overuse of monitoring that was happening around the country start to understand barriers um, to de-implementing pulse ox in that, in that population, and really develop strategies that might be effective in eliminating the unnecessary use of monitoring in kids with bronchiolitis. So sort of fast forward to now, um, we were able to get a, a second grant, a bigger grant, to be able to engage folks at, right now, 38 hospitals around the country to not only measure how much overuse is happening, but take really significant concrete steps towards de-implementing the use of monitoring. And it's pretty comprehensive, um, as you know, where it's something we're engaging physicians, but we're also engaging nurses. Um, we're, we're really building out a pretty intense quality improvement 
uh, and research effort to um, go forward with this de-implementation. And, and just the, the last piece that I'll mention is what we're comparing in the trial and what the outcomes are that we're looking at primarily. So what we're doing in EMO is in 38 hospitals, we're comparing two different strategic arms. So the first is education, which is something that we often do, whether we're doing quality improvement or just trying to uh, change behavior in the hospital. So we're educating nurses and physicians about physiologic monitoring, about the use of pulse oximetry and bronchiolitis. So that's the, the first piece. The second piece is audit and feedback. So audit and feedback is when folks at each site collect some data, submit that to us, and then we feed that back to them in sort of reports or dashboards that let them see how their performance has been over the past week or month or year. Um, so that's, that's the first arm. They get education and audit and feedback. And then the second arm also gets education, also gets audit and feedback, but then gets a third piece. They get electronic health record decision support. So what that means is that we have informatics people who are working with each of the 19 hospitals in that arm to develop and put into place some form of decision support that'll help to change nurses and physicians' behavior around monitoring and reduce unnecessary monitoring and bronchiolitis. So that's the comparison. Those are the two groups that we're comparing. And the outcome that we're looking at is sustainment. So we expect, based on earlier work that we've done, that education and audit and feedback will work and that will reduce overuse in all of the 38 sites. But what the question we're really asking is, does decision support in the electronic health record, does that help to sustain the improvements, sustain the de-implementation that we expect to happen? So our primary outcome is actually long-term sustainment. So we're really excited about all this and we're glad and we're really thankful to all the 38 hospitals that are participating. So I'm gonna take a play out of my nieces and nephews playbook and start asking basically why a bunch of times. So why should we be de-implementing continuous pulse ox? Isn't it kind of nice that we have all this technology to keep a really close eye on kids in the hospital? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, you know, um, it, it brings me back a little bit to my to my residency days. And when I was a resident, I put everybody on a monitor. I, I thought, you know, why not? You know, if we have this amazing sort of computer on the wall that's always connected to the patient and always looking at their vital signs, what could possibly go wrong with that? And the other um, assumption that I had back then was that when alarms went off, someone immediately would run into that room. I mean, why wouldn't they? It's an alarm, you know? And I think, um, as I alluded to um, earlier, one of the things that, that we now know is that that's not the case. We know that alarm fatigue is a real issue. So one of the first things that brought me to the table around de-implementing pulse ox was this issue around how can we really um, kind of preserve the signal and eliminate some of the noise, eliminate some of those unnecessary alarms that happen. Um, but I think from an, from an evidence standpoint, there are a few things that, that come out. Um, and, and the first is really around length of stay. So one of the, one of the pieces of, of evidence that we often point to here is that we do have a few studies that show that the use of continuous monitoring can lead to a prolonged length of stay in the hospital as well as unnecessary use of supplemental oxygen. So um, that, of course, is inconvenient for families, it's inconvenient for patients, and doesn't do great things for patient flow in the hospital, especially over the past few months when we've been so slammed with patients and so slammed with um, really sick patients who, who need beds. So the length of stay issue is one that is one that comes up a lot. And I think linked closely to that is we know that when we keep patients in the hospital longer, 
We know that unfortunately they're at, at ongoing risk of harm. So every day you keep a patient in the hospital that's unnecessary, there's an increased risk that they'll experience some sort of an adverse event. Could be something as, as simple as an IV infiltrate or a medication error um, or even um, an infection that they catch um, from either a staff member or another patient who's in the hospital. So um, I take the length of stay issue quite seriously and think of that as one that we need to really um, pay attention to and focus on. Uh, a second thing that, um, that actually turned the way that I think about this um, upside down for me a, a few years ago, it was back in 2016, was a study that was done basically asking the question of what happens when bronchiolitis kids go home um, and, and do they desaturate at home? You know, because again, in my early days, I was under this impression that um, we kept bronchiolitis patients in the hospital until they stopped desaturating and then they went home and they had a perfect oxygen saturation the whole time. And so this study that came out in, in 2016, led by um, Tanya Principe and, and others, asked that simple question and they basically what they did was they, they recruited families of infants who were about to be discharged home with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis from the emergency department. And they said, oh, just wait one second. <laughs> we're going to go grab a pulse oximeter. We're going to hook it up to your baby. Then we're still going to send you home. The pulse oximeter is going to be masked. You won't know if there's anything, you know, anything wrong, but um, then we'll have you send that pulse oximeter back to us uh, in a couple of days. And what they found, you know, to, to my surprise, and, and I think also to their surprise, was that well over half of um, babies who were sent home in this situation actually did desaturate for more than a minute. Um, but those patients who desaturated, they didn't have any difference in terms of their rate of return for medical visits or, or subsequent hospitalization. So that, that to me said, okay, wow, maybe... Maybe it makes sense to think a little bit differently about um, DSATs in, in, um, in bronchiolitis. Yeah, and I would add to that that um, Chris and I, as you know, Chris mentioned that he originally came to this work through the sort of alarm fatigue lens, and that's that's how I got involved in this work as well, and actually how we originally um, know each other. And it was, you know, Chris's work that actually demonstrated that most of the alarms on pediatric units come from pulse oximeters, and that less than um, two percent of those alarms on on pediatric wards are actionable, meaning that, you know, there's some intervention that's required um, of, of um, a clinician in response to a, a patient event that caused the alarm. And it's these alarms that really contribute to alarm fatigue. And from a, a perspective, um, you know, my clinical perspective as a nurse, alarm fatigue is, is something that we deal with on a, a daily basis, um, trying to navigate you know, how do we how do we make a decision about which patient's alarm to respond to? And what sometimes happens is that valid important alarms get missed because we make sort of the wrong call in terms of which alarm needs to be responded to. It's sort of a cry wolf effect, if you will. Um, and we also, you know, know that every hour of excess continuous monitoring of bronchiolitis patients who are off oxygen adds an average of seven unnecessary alarms, which increases nurses' workload um, and distracts them from other important care. So um, that's also a really important reason to think about um, whether or not monitoring is necessary um, and not just putting every patient onto a monitor. 
And then not to mention that there are other issues, um, you know, being connected to a monitor limits kids' uh, mobility, and that's really important as they're getting ready to go home. And certainly being um, on a continuous monitor doesn't replicate what the home environment. So from what you two have both said, it, it sounds like we've got a really a, a good amount of evidence to say that monitors aren't everything that we think they are, and they're not all they're cracked up to be. But what's the official stance from all the different scholarly societies we work with? What what do the guidelines say now? Or are you guys just kind of making up your own thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so not so much. We're um, we we are very fortunate, Tom, in that we do have three sets of national guidelines that um, that really guide this work and that build upon the evidence that that exists out there. So the two that I think most folks are familiar with are first the Choosing Wisely in Pediatric Hospital Medicine guidelines that came out in 2013. Those discourage continuous pulse ox in kids with acute respiratory illness who are not requiring supplemental oxygen. The AAP guidelines in 2014 focused on bronchiolitis said the same thing. And those were helpful in that they told us that we ought not do this. We ought not use continuous monitoring in bronchiolitis. But they um, had some degree of intentional vagueness, right, in terms of the time course of that. And so what I like a lot about the, what we call the BEEP monitoring guidelines, it stands for Best Evidence for Effective Pediatric Monitoring. Those were led by Amanda Schondelmeyer and published in Pediatrics in 2019. What I like about those is that they not only say that we shouldn't use continuous pulse ox in kids with bronchiolitis, but they go that extra step to say when we should go from continuous to intermittent spot checks. So in those guidelines, they say that kids who are weaned from supplemental oxygen to room air should be transitioned from continuous to intermittent pulse ox within one hour of coming off the supplemental oxygen if those stat sats remain stable at at least 90%. You know, of course, unless there are other reasons, complex chronic conditions, other forms of lung disease, heart disease, things like that, that would suggest otherwise. So this was helpful in that for the first time, we had a professional recommendation around that time to transition from continuous to intermittent pulse ox. Yeah, I think having that one hour really spelled out by someone has been super helpful for us as clinicians. Um, I also really appreciate that they call the monitoring guidelines beep for when you're talking about alarms. I love it. I think that was all Amanda Schonemeyer. Very, very creative work there. All right. So what you guys are saying is that we have good evidence and we have good guidelines too. So why even bother doing a study? Why not just tell people, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing, so just go do it? Right. Yeah. No, thanks, Tom, for, for the question. So, you know, big picture, we want to, in the United States and, and Canada, we really want to be able to get to a point where we can effectively de-implement the use of continuous pulse ox in bronchiolitis on a large scale, even larger than our study. So what we're trying to figure out in this study of 38 hospitals is what are the strategies that we can best apply in order to get large groups of people, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, to stop using continuous pulse ox and to, to maintain that, that de-implementation over time. So we're trying these two different strategies, you know, in terms of using education, using audit and feedback, and then in the other arm, also using clinical decision support in the EHR to really think about what are the ways that we can change culture and we're measuring things with the culture. What are ways that we can institutionalize this practice so that it becomes part of the systems that we use at each hospital to manage monitoring? 
as well as how can we build this into routines so that it's part of just the way people do their work each day. So we're doing all of those things to figure out how ultimately we can get a really large scale implementation across the country. So this study of 38 hospitals, that is big, but there's another many hundred hospitals who may be next in line to, to do this de-implementation. So we really want to get it right and figure out the right answer for how to de-implement in this group of hospitals so that we can ultimately scale it uh, nationally and, and get this practice changed permanently. Now I'm going to say one thing I've run into a lot over the years, and especially lately with all the, the staffing issues we've had, nurses, residents having way more patients than we really know what to do with sometimes is a lot of people think that monitors are a good thing and it just makes them feel, quote, more comfortable with the patient. Um, they think of the monitors as like a babysitter or an extra set of eyes, especially if a parent can't be there, for example, at night. So what do you say to them to really get them to buy into this? Yeah, thanks, Tom. That's a great question. And I think really goes back to this, how do we change the culture around um, thinking about what monitors are and how we use them on our units. And I think the first and most important piece is to acknowledge the concern, you know, that concern is coming from a good place and there are real limitations of uh, the clinical environment. Um, we want to make sure that all our patients are safe and we certainly wouldn't be taking care of kids if that wasn't our top priority. What we're trying to get clinicians to do here is to remember that continuous monitoring is not without risks. So um, the use of continuous monitoring really should be a risk benefit assessment for each patient on an individual basis. Um, so nurses and other clinical team members should think about the, you know, the risks that, that we've talked about um, so far today when they're they're making decisions about using continuous monitoring. So that's things like, you know, um, potentially increasing length of stay, unnecessary treatments, restricting patients' mobility, um, this, the issue of alarm fatigue and those alarms potentially increasing nurses' workload. Um, and, you know, again, that we have these national pediatric guidelines that we mentioned um, that that tell us for this specific population for, for um, uh, stable bronchiolitis that aren't, you know, kids that aren't needing oxygen, it's safe to avoid the use of continuous monitoring. Um, and there was a multi-site study as well that showed no difference in the rates of escalation of care between patients who were continuously monitored versus intermittently monitored with pulse oximetry. And these, again, were infants with um, bronchiolitis who had oxygen saturations of greater than 90% off supplemental oxygen. And honestly, what I tell families is that at the end of the day, I care more about how their kid looks than what some machine or number tells me. It's uh, thankfully the one way that I know that machines aren't taking my job anytime soon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Those physical assessment skills are really important. All right. Well, you've got me convinced. But let me tell you about something that happens to me a lot at night. So after I get done staffing the patients, I'll go see the patient myself, talk with the family, and really just make sure everything's going okay or what I was expecting to see based on the presentation from the residents. I'll go in, the monitors might be on sometimes, so I'll actually turn them off, but sometimes a family will look at me completely flabbergasted and wonder why they're not on monitors anymore. They may say something like, well, I have my kid on outlet all the time at home, why aren't we having them on some kind of monitors here? Are you saying we're going to be doing less here in the hospital than we do at home? How do you guys want us to address that when we're talking to families? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that we 
actually had as well. So we ended up meeting with a family advisory committee here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Research Institute to work on developing some talking points um, that clinicians could use when they were discussing monitoring with patients and, and families. And some of the things we heard from families included, you know, first that, that um, the hospitalization experience can be very uncertain and that it's helpful if we can set expectations early about when and how monitoring will be used and, um, you know, explaining to families that the child might not need to be on continuous monitoring for their whole stay and that that's a good thing because it, it indicates that that they're improving. Um, and then also acknowledging that that some families have that positive association with pulse oximeters, as you say, they might even have one at home. And so we should certainly acknowledge that, but also let families know that part of monitoring is not just the technology, but also the physical assessment that clinicians, physicians, and nurses are, are performing on their child when they're in the hospital. And so we're assessing, you know, looking at the way that the child's breathing, we are, um, you know, monitoring their activity level and so forth and, and um, helping families to understand what all the, the signs and symptoms are that we're looking at. And then finally, um, families, you know, just ask that we be consistent because parents talk to each other. And so we want to be consistent about the reasons and the situations in which we're using continuous monitoring. One of the things I've done that I've found kind of successful is essentially explaining that when you're admitted to the hospital, that's a different setting than in the emergency department. And their goal is really that initial triage, figure out is your kid sick or not. And our goal in the hospital is to watch for progression, whether you're getting better or getting worse, and explaining how continuous monitors might or honestly might not be appropriate at times in the ED and whether or not they are or are not appropriate here on the floor. So even if it's a, by saying it's a different setting, we don't have to do the exact same things. And I've sometimes have found that helpful for some families. Yeah, great point. Now, here's a good question. What about a nap test? For those of you listening who might not be familiar what it is, it's essentially throwing a pull socks on a kid while they're asleep. Yeah, thanks for asking about this. This definitely comes up from time to time, Tom. So, you know, we're really trying to stick to what the evidence directs us to do, what the guidelines direct us to do. You know, the aim here is really we're monitoring based on evidence, right? So with the NAP test, there's no evidence to support a NAP test as an appropriate intervention, as appropriate form of uh, deciding if someone meets criteria for discharge. So we just shouldn't do it. We should just erase it <laughs> from any guideline or, or you know, any, any local pathway that, um, that promotes it. Um, there's not a reason to do it, again, in health, you know, previously healthy kids with, with bronchiolitis. There may be other conditions where it makes sense, but for bronchiolitis, uh, n not, not something that's, that's valuable to do. Um, a, a related issue, Tom, that, that you, may have, you may have heard of as well, is there are some, um, some folks who have said, well, what about when a baby is first admitted, you know, maybe we keep them on for 12 hours, you know, on the continuous monitor just to make sure that things aren't going to go in the wrong direction. And, you know, similar to the nap test, that's another practice that, you know, never had any evidence to support doing that in the first place. And so I think we should avoid that kind of practice as well and just stick to when they're on supplemental oxygen or um, in that hour as they're transitioning off supplemental oxygen. I mean, there, there's plenty of things we do in medicine for no good reason, and those are, those are definitely a couple examples of it that we can probably get away from doing. Totally agree. So what's next? What are you guys hoping to find 
of the future, both with the emo study and how it's going to affect how we care for kids in the future. Yeah, I mean, as a hospitalist, Tom, I'm excited about it from from two perspectives. The first is is specific to bronchiolitis, and and I think with emo, I'm really excited that we will learn, hopefully, the best way, the optimal way to de-implement continuous pulse oximetry um, in these kids. And and if we do, then we can spread that further beyond emo, and hopefully, really um, reduce this practice, make a make a big dent uh, in this practice on a on a national level, and that's exciting. I think the other thing from a pediatric hospital medicine standpoint is there are a lot of other things that we do for no reason. A lot of other things that we do where there's not a lot of evidence, um, you know, to, to show benefit. So, you know, one example is we use a lot of antibiotics in kids who are hospitalized with what's really like if we think about, you know, in our heart of hearts, this kid really have bacterial pneumonia? Eh, probably not. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of antibiotic overprescribing that we could we could dial back on. Another one that people bring up to me all the time in, in a way that's really exciting is high-flow nasal cannula. You know, we went from using essentially zero high-flow nasal cannula outside the ICU to using it in almost all of the bronchiolitis patients who were admitted um, at the time they come in, at, le- at least at CHOP, that's what I see. And then a third, I think, practice that we um, talk about a fair amount is the overuse of IV hydration. Um, you know, there are lots of downsides to even just putting in an, an IV catheter, including pain, uh, you know, including if those IV, IVs infiltrate and can cause tissue, tissue damage and, and additional pain. Uh, and we have a good alternative. NG hydration in, in most situations in bronchiolitis is a, is a great um, acceptable alternative. So I'm excited to think about how we can take learnings from EMO and then apply them to other practices. I'm really excited about uh, thinking about culture change and, and sustaining the changes that we see and what we'll learn from the emo trial about how to do that, um, you know, how to institutionalize um, these practices. And um, in this trial, we'll hopefully really understand the relationship between education, audit, and feedback, and then adding on this uh, clinical decision support tool. Um, and it, um, from a nursing perspective, we're often in, in situations where, you know, there is a best practice, there is an evidence base, but it is getting that uh, evidence into practice that's the real challenge. Um, and so many studies come in, do, you know, a, do their, their study, and then leave and don't think about that sort of sustainment piece. So what's really exciting about this study is is looking at how do we how do we actually create a culture change around a practice that um, is really entrenched and that people um, feel you know have a lot of strong thoughts and opinions about. So we're excited to bring the evidence to folks and to help figure out how to how to create culture change and sustain it. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to run through the EMO project and really explain it in a lot more detail. Honestly, with all the RSV we've been seeing over the last few months, this really couldn't be coming at a better time. Um, Chris, any kind of last words or thoughts before we get going? Yeah, thanks, Tom. First of all, thank you for inviting us on and and really allowing us to share uh, the excitement that we have around EMO. Um, I do have a few folks who I want to thank, if if that's okay. You know, um, Renad Betis is an incredible co-PI who's an implementation scientist and has been working with me uh, for many years uh, thinking about EMO and and other aspects of implementation science. So super grateful to her. I think without her, uh, this would never have, uh, have come to fruition. So super grateful to Renad. 
Um, also want to thank our, our steering committee, the EMO steering committee, who uh, we meet every every two weeks and talk about all of these uh, all of these issues. And you know, are, they're an incredible um, north star for EMO. Um, Prize Network. So Prize Network is a source of all of these incredible sites. Um, and uh, and and really uh, beyond the Prize Network, all of our site leads who are working on an almost daily basis probably to move EMO forward at their sites, whether it's doing education, collecting data, doing audit and feedback, working with informatics coaches to put their CDS into place. Um, really an incredible group of people. And then finally, our funders. So um, the National Heart Lung Blood Institute has been an incredible source of financial support. Um, we also have two folks from NHLBI who attend our meetings once a month, Aruna Natarajan and Karen Beanstock. Um, really incredible uh, resources and, uh, and guides as we go through this. So a uh, million more people I could thank, but I uh, figured I'd start with that. So thanks for the opportunity, Tom, for um, letting me thank them. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of PHM After Dark, a podcast where we explore the exciting world of pediatric hospital medicine at night. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Mike, as always, hoping you find joy in everything you do, even after dark. Take care. <laughs>